Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change. All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our Brave Feminine Leadership interview series on founders. Um, our final interview in the series. And I'm absolutely thrilled today to bring you an incredible leader, um, Dr. Michelle Perugini. Michelle, welcome. Hi, thank you so much. Michelle, I am going to, so excuse me for looking down briefly while I read through your bio and then we'll get going with our conversation. So Dr. Michelle Perugini is a health tech entrepreneur with extensive experience in healthcare and advanced AI technologies. Michelle's an avid supporter of the artificial intelligence and women's health sectors globally and winner of the 2021 Women in AI Healthcare Award. She has a PhD in medicine, was a postdoctoral research fellow in oncology for a decade and has founded two global AI tech companies, the first of which was acquired by EY in 2015. Michelle is currently co-founder and CEO of Presagen, an AI healthcare company building the social network for healthcare with a focus on women's health. Presagen's first product, Life Whisperer, uses AI for embryo selection to improve pregnancy outcomes in IVF and is being used in IVF clinics globally. Michelle, I love an amazing uh, success story and a kind of heart-led story um, all the way from Adelaide. It's absolutely fantastic to welcome you. So before we get going, I would just like to say for anyone in our audience who hasn't come across you before, would you share with us kind of who you are and, and let's start digging into your story? Yeah, sure, sure. That's a tough question, isn't it? Who am I? <laughs> um, look, I, I think, you know, when I look back to sort of my younger years, I certainly wasn't an entrepreneur. That comes up quite often um, in questions in these types of interviews. I really started out with a passion for human biology and the body and really always was fascinated with the way that the body works, the inner workings of cells and um, the biological mechanisms that kind of make us tick and survive. And so that's how I got into science originally. Um, that was a really interesting field for me. I spent, as you, as you mentioned, a decade in the oncology sector looking at everything from cell biology to understanding how leukemic cells are, are programmed to understanding the genetic and epigenetic changes of those cells. And I loved it. I loved that nitty gritty of kind of understanding everything about how things function. And then at some point during that journey, I really started to feel the desire to be able to help improve actual clinical outcomes. And so whilst I was really good at this kind of basic science, I really wanted to understand how can I translate that knowledge into something that can actually improve patient outcomes. So I started getting more into the translational medical area, mm -hmm. you know, looking at um, different predictors, genetic predictors or markers that could predict response to new disease um, or drug treatments. And that was really interesting. Um, and then I, I took kind of a, a, um, a real shift in my career, if you like, with my first business. I had an opportunity to 
um, to enter that AI space. My co-founder and partner was in that AI sector in the Defence Department of Defence for over a decade. And he had a very similar kind of personality type to me, really wanted to see the practical applications of this technology. And so as he kind of pursued that from a business perspective, I became more and more involved and more interested in the technology aspects and started to see massive synergies between healthcare and the kind of basic science area and technology. And that's where that kind of passion developed. Um, Everyone always kind of asks me, was it a really big leap to leave research? And I think at the time it was a really difficult decision because I genuinely loved what I was doing. Um, I was very good at it. I was leading a team and, and really enjoyed that process. But I'm the type of person who's always loved a lot of things. I could be happy doing so many different things. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to pass up this opportunity to do something in this amazing, you know, burgeoning field of AI, this is an opportunity that I have now and I'm going to take it. Um, and so I decided to kind of run that business with Don. We built a company. Um, we bumbled through, you know, eight years of, of many mistakes and many ups and downs and, you know, selling product in, in a whole range of different industries globally um, and eventually built that business up to the point where it was acquired by EY in 2015. What, what did that business do, Michelle? So it was essentially consumer behaviour modelling. So we used AI to predict um, consumer behaviour at whole population levels. So we would model and simulate an entire population of consumers, their likes and dislikes, their purchasing behaviour for certain products. Um, and using AI, we would allow our customers to run scenarios around different, you know, policies or different um, levers that they could use to drive uptake of, of different policies or behaviour change programs. So right away from the medical field for that period of time. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Completely away from the medical field. We did do some work in healthcare around sort of behavioural response and um, improving health and wellness with certain technologies like Fitbit. You know, how does how does the feedback of that data change behaviour um, for people to exercise more or eat better? Um, and so there were some health aspects to some of the work that we did, but it was quite a departure from the um, medical research field that I had come. But I knew it would always be linked um, at some point in the future. And this was kind of a means to be able to learn and enter into an industry sector that's a little easier to get into than healthcare. And I'm dying to ask now that you brought it up, um, does the feedback from the Fitbit data encourage people to exercise and eat better? It sure does. I'm wearing uh -huh. one now. <laughs> it does because we're, as, as human beings, what we were doing is mapping the decision process and understanding what are the kind of influencing factors and the core drivers that, that drive people to make um, better decisions. And so certainly that's one of the things that um, helps drive so 2015, um, EY acquired that business. And I mm -hmm. guess there was a decision point then around, did you decide you'd retire at that point or what was? No, absolutely <laughs> not. I didn't make enough money to retire. <laughs> and actually, if you know me as a person, you would know that that would never happen. Um, so it's, but what it did do is it gave us a great deal of experience with understanding how that corporate world works. Um, <clears throat> gave me a different layer of or level of um, level of understanding of kind of that 
as an endpoint. So I, I view my entire journey as a complete learning experience. Yep. And, you know, for better or worse, I wouldn't change a anything um, as part of that journey. And I think that was one of those situations that we were probably not entirely prepared for. And it was a really difficult process. Um, and it was, you know, integrating into a very large company can be challenging. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we got to work with amazing people across a whole range of different industry sectors. We gained a wealth of knowledge from that experience and it gave us the means to be able to um, build Preston and bring that healthcare and AI together ultimately. So, um, so many different ways to go with the questions, Michelle, but let's get to Presagen and what Presagen does um, and what the first product is, because I think it's incredible. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so Preston's a really interesting company and I might I might just spend a couple of minutes just telling you about how we kind of started. So yeah. our previous business was all about kind of creating this platform and a whole range of different industry applications from the platform. We, we wanted to do something similar in healthcare and with Preston, it was all about, um, we call it the social network for healthcare. It's really about um, building a global collaborative network of clinics and patients from around the world to be able to access diverse data sets to build AI products that can actually scale into different clinical environments and different patients. Um, and the reason that that scale is important is because then you can deliver those products at low cost. Um, and in healthcare, cost affordability and access is a huge issue and a huge barrier for many people, not only in remote areas, but <clears throat> even in developed countries like the US and Australia and elsewhere. So really, that was kind of the premise for, for Preston as a whole. Um, but Life Whisperer is our first product, and that is looking at um, using AI to analyse embryo images during the IVF process to essentially help clinicians to pick the healthiest embryo, the embryo that's likely to lead to a pregnancy and likely to be genetically normal. Um, and that's really important because it can save patients needless IVF treatment cycles, and it's a really terrible process. Mm. Um, when we left EY, I, you know, we were trying to take a little bit of time off. Um, that didn't work particularly well because I started mentoring in all these commercialization programs and I actually met Jonathan Hall, who's our now third co-founder. Mm. And Jonathan was kind of exploring ways of imaging and putting probes and certain things into culture media of embryos to measure their quality. And it just was such an interesting idea to me. And I thought, wow, this can have a huge impact on human um, embryology and, and IVF outcomes. And having suffered through infertility myself personally, um, I was really drawn to that particular idea. And I thought it was a perfect marriage of kind of my stem cell biology genetics background, his physics and nanotechnology background, and also Don's AI background. It was almost completely serendipitous. Um, and so I said to Jonathan, if, if you want to do this, we're going to we're going to make this our first product of Preston um, and this will be our first application. We had no idea if it would work. We set out to kind of work with our early partners and do proof of concepts. Um, and it worked. And so we, you know, then started expanding that concept globally in the fertility sector and Life Whisperer now is approved in around two thirds of the global world uh, market. Um, we've got customers using the technology in, you know, Europe and Australia, um, Canada, Southeast Asia, India, 
um, out of the box, really low cost, completely scalable, um, and it's really exciting. And now kind of the game is to expand into other areas of women's health. Congratulations. So you started this out of Adelaide and you've now physically relocated, haven't you? Yeah, so we have a split team. I'm in California. I'm in Northern California in the Bay Area. Um, and Jonathan leads the R&D and software team out of Australia still. So we still have our team in Australia. And in the US, we have our commercial regulatory and, and um, part of our executive. Incredible. So women's healthcare is, um, is the intention for all of the Presidin products? It is. We're intentionally focused in women's health. We think it's a really important area. Um, it, you know, people talk about the fact that it's been a little bit of a forgotten, um, forgotten field. I like to talk about it from the perspective that women are just very different to men. Um, biologically, um, the way that we interact with the healthcare system is more a continuum rather than kind of episodic interactions. You know, we have very synergistic needs across our entire lifetime um, from the time that we're wanting to conceive children, perhaps encountering fertility issues to the time we have to, you know, go through that reproduction cycle all the way through to menopause. Um, mm. There's just so many interconnected pieces in that story. And so that's where we think we can really add a huge amount of value. And obviously we've started in the IVF sector, but we're um, expanding beyond that into other areas of women's health. So can I ask, Michelle, because it comes up a lot with our audience, um, and I read a New York Times article the other day um, that was headed up, these 12 women don't want it all, they want it better. And what it talked about was it talked about, um, give us one word to describe how you're feeling right now. And the words that they put out there were thinly spread, impatient, existing, exhausted and imposter. Um, you have this incredible career um, and have had this incredible career. Does any of that resonate with you or has it resonated with you along your journey? Oh, all of it. Um, absolutely. <laughs> I think, you know, I think it's a wonderful thing to be a woman. Um, I think we have amazing opportunities across many different facets of life, but let's not, you know, be disillusioned that it's difficult, right? We're, we're kind of the child bearers and, you know, that that provides a real stopgap in terms of career. It's really difficult to have children whilst you're trying to build a business or whilst you're trying to do your studies. Um, there's certain expectations, I think, historically that have been placed on women that make us feel incredibly guilty when we're not fulfilling that historical kind of role expectation. Yeah. And so I think it's it's really natural and normal for every woman to feel those emotions. Um, and I think, you know, women in general tend to be a little less confident because, you know, historically we haven't had the same opportunities in the workforce as men and we haven't risen to the same levels of management on average as a whole, um, as a gender. And so I think that's changing. And, you know, certainly my experience in leadership has been a really positive one as a female. And I, I can only count probably on one hand the amount of times that it's been sort of negatively impacted my journey. And there are a couple of those times, but it's, you know, by and large, I think it's on us to really elevate ourselves and really take carriage of the opportunities that we're given 
and try to, um, you know, make the best of them with what we feel is appropriate for ourselves, not what the expectation is from society. And so can you think of any of those moments? Because I think it'd be interesting for people to know how you overcame them or what, what, what you did to navigate that space. Yeah, this is a tricky one without giving too much detail. <laughs> I, I Certainly the wage parity one has come up before where um, I've been in a situation where a, a male counterpart with the exact um, background and experience being hired at the exact same time was offered 40% um, more wage than I was. Um, that's horrifying. I fought it and so did he, which was interesting. Um, and so, you know, that, that was kind of one positive outcome from a negative Absolutely. experience. But there's, you know, I think just sometimes if you're, you know, it happens a lot. This hasn't really happened to me, but I know a lot of female founders who have had quite negative experiences with male investors um, and, you know, if you think about it, we're in a, where I'm a female CEO, a female co-founder leading a business in women's health, um, trying to pitch to male investors yes. <laughs> can be challenging because yes. there's sort of a lack of a gap in understanding. And that's not because they're insensitive or, um, you know, or trying to um, dismiss the needs of women. It's just that they don't have that common thread of understanding. And so sometimes that can be challenging as well. And they're more the unconscious biases um, based on knowledge and, and, you know, understanding. Should more women become founders? Um, I don't think necessarily. I think women should become what they feel they want to become. You know, it's not for everyone. I've spoken to many women founders who, you know, who find it quite difficult. I've spoken to others who um, are really driven to kind of, you know, be a founder and, and drive their own business forward. And so I think it's a very personal decision and not one that you can really encourage or discourage. Um, it is hard, but it also gives you a certain level of freedom over your own destiny. And for me, that's an amazing experience, um, just being able to, you know, to build something from scratch and build something of value that can actually impact lives across the world is just an unbelievable opportunity for me. Um, but that's certainly not for everyone. When do you think you really understood, because um, part of building a good business is having a fantastic idea, you know, there's so many pieces of your story and background that came together. And, you know, you can look at that and say, was it a happy accident? I don't think it was. Um, you know, what, what was the point where you think you really understood that what you were doing was, was going to be successful and add incredible value? I think um, it's all about kind of being open to opportunity, isn't it? Like, I think you make your own successes. If you're, if you're open to trying new things and exploring, I always tell anyone who I'm mentoring, you need to explore outside of your immediate domain because, you're an expert in your domain. So you already know everything about that domain that you need to know to be successful within that um, area. But where the real value comes is where you can start exploring outside of that domain, start looking at kind of synergistic areas where you might be able to extend yourself. And I think that's good from a personal and professional development perspective, but it can also build really amazing ideas. And I think that's what we did with Preston. We you know, we found a need um, for 
it was the right time for AI in healthcare. Um, Life Whisperer as a product was certainly needed within the IVF sector and we just had the right experience to be able to build it properly. Um, and then we sought out the right partners to be able to help us do that. And I think it's so that certainly was not accidental. Um, it was kind of being open to that opportunity. And I would never have come across that opportunity if I wasn't giving my time as a mentor um, in these programs. I would never have met Jonathan. And I've met so many founders like that, that have been advisors to their business or or, you know, and there'll be completely different businesses to my own, but I learned something from that journey every single time that I can apply to my own business. It's such a great conversation, isn't it? If you are loving the conversation and you want to hear more about how you can take the next step in your career, come and find out about our masterclasses. Join our website at bravefeminineleadership.com. See you there. And so I think just that kind of being open and trying to understand a little bit beyond your immediate discipline just gives you a wealth of knowledge that you can apply in different ways within your own domain. So who, um, and it's fantastic that you continue to mentor people. Um, I love all of that. Did you have any incredible mentors along the way? I did. I did, particularly in my first business. Um, so in our first business, we had a couple of really strong mentors. Um, and, you know, <laughs> Sometimes they would give us advice and we would think it was completely crazy. But, you know, in hindsight, that advice is what shaped those business, that business. Um, and had we have not had that advice at the time and taken it, I think, you know, the trajectory would have been very different. So it's not to say that you need to take the advice of your mentors every time and you should not do that. You need to be selective with what you take. But you need to listen and you need to learn and you need to be open to suggestions. And I think if you do that, then it's um, it's really amazing kind of the knowledge that you can accumulate from people who are willing to help you. And I think even more so than a mentor who will tell you how to do your pitch deck or something like that is someone who really believes in you as a person, mm -hmm. someone who can kind of personally vouch for you and give you the confidence that you can actually do this. I think that's really important, particularly as a first-time founder. Do you have a network you lean on to kind of help you at various points on the journey? I do. My network now is more my peers because I've kind of, I've got a very strong kind of entrepreneurial network and I find that really helpful. Sometimes I call it, you know, counselling sessions. We, um, you know, we've got WhatsApp groups and, yeah. and so forth and someone will post a, a comment and you know everyone kind of leans in and tries to help out and I think it just helps to know that other people go through the same challenges that you're going through because when you're in the moment sometimes you think you know life couldn't possibly get any busier or more complicated than it is and then something happens and you're like wow I didn't even realize I had the capacity to deal with that right now um, but you do you do you push through it and you lean on those people to help you from a personal perspective and also sometimes from a professional perspective and and they know where you've been because they're going through it themselves and sometimes that's just really helpful. What do you love about the CEO role? I never wanted to be a CEO, I have to be completely honest. So this was not kind of the path that I set out to be, but I think I'm very good at it because I'm a generalist. I actually really enjoy the breadth of things that I get to do as a CEO. I like being involved in the finance, in the sales and the marketing and the 
you know, kind of building consumer products and products that are going to impact patients and how do we do that in the best way and kind of analysing market dynamics. And I, I love everything about um, the breadth of the role. So obviously it can be a little daunting, you know, being in that senior position, but I think if you've got an executive team that's highly supportive, then it's really a collective a collective leadership role, I would call it. Amazing. When you were studying biology at school, did you were there role models you looked to at that point in time? I think there were role models of a different type. So they were role models within that discipline, which are very different. Um, my scientific role models. Yeah. Um, and you know, I I still I still, you know, keep in touch with all of those people that I used to work with. And actually, um, one of them is part of my executive now. She also left science um, and she's our regulatory executive, and she's one of the most fabulous people on our team. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, people pass through these different stages of career and they take different paths. And at some point, you know, I think that network's just so important because you meet again at some point and you can still add value to each other 20 years down the track. I think I think that's amazing. I love that. And networks are really important to me even as I mentioned even if they're not directly related to what I'm doing now yeah. um, I really treasure my networks and all of those contacts that I've had over the years during that journey. Um, Michelle when I look at your your story and your career I think of all of the people um, you know not just today in our audience but over time all of the people that these sort of conversations and your story can inspire and, you know, I particularly think, you know, I imagine um, students who are kind of exploring the STEM space right now um, and thinking about what that might open up for opportunities in the future. I'm thinking about the, you know, young women at uni who are just starting to navigate, you know, science and medicine and that sort of space. And maybe they're having a tough day wondering whether, you know, this is, this is where they want to stay. Um, and then they're starting a family. And they're finding that challenging and it's not as easy as perhaps people led them to believe it might be. Um, and then an early stage founder and then, you know, someone who's got two successful businesses behind them thinking kind of what's next as well. I just wonder if we can touch on each of those stages and just think about, you know, what, what would have been an important message for you to hear then or when you think of those people, what comes to mind? There's one common thread across all of those things. I think in order to be successful in anything you do, you have to really love it. Um, you have to be passionate about it. So I would never encourage someone to go into STEM that wasn't passionate about STEM. Um, and I think, you know, we live in a multidisciplinary world and I look at the area that I'm in and I've got a medical background. You know, my co-founders have deep technology backgrounds and my team have just such a broad range of everything from finance to compliance, regulatory, marketing, sales, you know, medical liaison, um, you know, deep research science. And it's so there's a place for everyone within a company, if that makes sense. So I think it's really about just doing what, what draws your passion um, and doing something that you can really enjoy doing. And so, you know, I think 
whilst I say that technology is kind of the way of the future and so I think it's important for people to be at least literate around technology and if you're doing sort of a purist course in you know medicine or health sciences or something else um, I would encourage you to sort of seek a couple of peripheral courses outside of that discipline in something a bit more future um, looking so that you can get a broader lens for what you might want to do. And then I think, again, through all of those stages, it's about taking opportunities and not being scared to be on a particular path for the rest of your life. Um, I remember when I went through the journey of kind of transitioning out of science, I was met with a lot of scepticism doing that. Um, you know, why would you leave a successful scientific career? Why would you, um, you know, spend all this time studying for this one thing and then just throw it all away, I think was the word. <laughs> and that was from, you know, family, friends, my supervisors, everyone was what kind of telling say? me, what are you doing? What did you say? Well, I, I think at the time I felt really unsure about that decision and I kept on challenging myself on it, thinking, is this really what I want to do? And actually I worked both jobs for like years, for, for a few years. And that was really difficult. At one point um, I had the business um my full-time science career and I had my first child so go figure how many hours in the day um <laughs> that didn't work out so well but you know it can be done and I think you need to do it in the way that suits your needs if that makes sense for me that was a really good way of transitioning out making sure that I was doing the right thing without completely throwing this thing um away and you know as it turned out I think I always knew that I would always draw on those um, experience and I am you know I'm probably doing as much science now as I ever was um, yeah. but in a different orientation yeah. um, and you know doing a PhD is really just a license to problem solve which is everything that you need to do in life so fantastic um, okay so um, how about the the starting a family I'm starting a family and I'm finding it challenging yeah um, wow, starting a family is, it's tough, right? It's tough. It's all consuming and, you know, it's the most wonderful part of your life, but it's also the busiest part of your life. Um, and to put it into context, my husband and I were both in business together. Um, so, you know, that's kind of double the pressure, double the expectation, double the risk um, and double the reward. So yeah. it's kind of extreme. Um, lucky we both have sort of entrepreneurial, slightly risk taking um, yeah. <laughs> personalities. But yeah, it's it's really hard. But I think, again, it's I don't think you need to put one thing on hold to service the other because you'll never get there right it, you're constantly learning and growing and changing and doing new things and unless you're planning on retiring at 38 um, and then having your children it's just a pipe dream you just so again I think it's about doing things when it makes sense for your timing when you feel comfortable and ready um, is when you should take that step and how did you juggle that period of time how did you find your way through all of those things together well, both my children slept very well <laughs> through hard discipline. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I have I have two children. So um, my son's 10 now and my daughter's eight. And it's still hard because 
they're very demanding of your time at that age, right? They're little and they still need their parents and they still need help all the time. But I feel like I've given them experiences that many other children will never have in their lifetime. We've, you know, we've now moved to the US. We've, they've travelled everywhere with us. It was hard. I'm not going to lie. It was very difficult, but we made it work. They came everywhere with us for work. Um, you know, we're in China for a month. We'd bring a family member. We're in, you know, the US six, eight times a year. Um, and they would just come and they became very flexible. And now I can see some of those personality traits coming out in them. And I'm like, wow, these kids have had so much real world experience. But, you know, sure, it's probably been difficult for them from one sense, but they've just got this wealth of knowledge now about the world. And I think that's amazing. Um, and they've seen their parents kind of develop something. And my son often, you know, he'll tell people, random people that he meets about, you know, what we do as a business. And he thinks it's amazing. That's um, and he's 10, you know, yes. so yeah, very different lifestyle than what I was brought up with. Um, but, you know, we make it work. You and I had a conversation when we first spoke around courage and confidence. And, you know, I was just interested about, um, you know, reflecting on that. What do you think's come first throughout your life? Yeah, I, I think when we were talking, I said confidence, but then I changed my mind. I think it's courage because I don't think anyone starts with the confidence until they've had the courage to have those experiences. And it's the kind of success of those experiences or the the failure and recovery um, process that's what gives you confidence because that's what makes you understand that well you know what's the worst possible outcome and can I accept that and therefore do I take that risk and try that thing um, and that takes a lot of courage but it's also what builds your confidence so you need both yeah. um, and I think sometimes I think sometimes as women we struggle a little bit with the courage and confidence part. I think we struggle with both of those things. Um, and, you know, we we are not as, you know, able to deal with failure, I think, as our male counterparts. And, you know, that's just something inherent, I think, in, in many of our natures. Not everyone, but certainly for myself, that, that's been a struggle. Um, but, again, it's about just persistence and grit, and just keeping on trying again and not being told that you can't do something. That's kind of the biggest driver for me, being told that I can't do something. Um, I think it's always that constant kind of, you know, wanting to achieve things for your own personal sort of um, goals. And so it's interesting what you say around, um, you know, generally not being able to deal with points of failure as well and things like that. And that's when I hear people say they get that inner voice that comes up. Um, and kind of replays a scenario over and over in their head and, and those sorts of things. Um, is that what happens to you at those points? Like how do you how do you kind of just dust yourself off and, and get on with it? It doesn't anymore. Um, I think I'm actually very good at dusting myself yeah. and getting, getting over it. But I think the way I deal with that is really it's super simple I just try and imagine every possible outcome negative and positive and and just make sure that I'm comfortable with all of those eventualities and you know it is what it is the best you can do in life is try um, and you know be a good person and try and do the right things and do as best you can and unfortunately beyond that it's completely out of your control so really? I, I kind of take solace in the fact that I've always tried my best 
Um, I'm kind of, I've always been driven for the achievement. That's my personal kind of goal. Um, it's not about money. It's not about fame. It's not about um, having the biggest thing. It's about that achievement. It's about achieving my ultimate goals. And so I think so long as I've fulfilled that, I'm, I'm happy that I've done my best. Might lead into this question. In fact, you may have already just answered it. But if I ask you what your superpower as a founder is, what would you say? I would say, and this is kind of counter to what I'm going to say, <laughs> is humility. I think it's just being really honest and open and transparent. I'm I'm honest to a flaw, um, and I think. But I think people respect that and I think people respond to that and they want to partner with you and work with you if you're honest and, um, you know, if you show humility in what you do. So I think that's something that I, I've always had as part of my personality. I can't be anything different. Um, I, you know, I would be terrible in a sales role because that's just, it's not my personality. Um, it's, it's about being humble and honest across in you know absolutely comes across in spades and I'm sure it's why you've got such deep networks and long-lasting relationships like you said earlier with someone 20 years ago that you work with who circled back as part of your executive team so um, I really love that Michelle the final question I ask of everybody in our interview series is from your perspective what does brave feminine leadership look like and do you think it needs to change I think it's exactly what it what it sounds like. Um, it's about being brave, about being courageous, about trying your best, um, about trying new things and exploring outside your comfort zone, extending yourself um, into areas that that you know are, are beyond what you would normally explore. And you know that's hard to do, but wow, it's super rewarding if you can do that. Even just extending yourself little by little, it's just an amazing opportunity to expand your, your experiences in life. Joel, thank you so much for being part of our conversation. I know your story and your business will inspire so many people. So on behalf of all of them, thank you. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. If the conversation's resonating with you and it's starting some questions around you and your future and your next step, come and join us. Come and join the conversation at bravefeminineleadership.com. We would love to meet you.